Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 182 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Sam Hoadley, manager of horticultural research at Mount Cuba Center, all about Amsonia. The plant profile is on Coralberry, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events and this week's garden tasks in the What's New segment. We close out with a last word on Craving Summer Flavors by Christy Page of Green Prince. This episode, we're joined by Sam Hoadley. He is the manager of horticultural research at Mount Cuba Center outside of Wilmington, Delaware. Welcome back, Sam. Oh, thank you, Kathy. It's, it's great to be back. So last year, we had Sam on the Garden DC podcast talking all about Carex for the Mid-Atlantic region. And this year, we're talking all about Amsonia. But before we dive into all that good Amsonianess, <laughs> we are going to talk a little bit about Mount Cuba and you, Sam, just checking in on how the past year has been, any exciting developments or changes for you or the garden. Yeah, absolutely. So since we've talked, uh, there's been a lot of changes in the trial garden. We're kind of at a stage where um, we've wrapped up a lot of studies and we're rotating in some new things and we're going to be starting to look at um some new observations this year, um, some upcoming trials. If you were to come see us uh, when we open back up on April 3rd, we have an ongoing evaluation on oak leaf hydrangeas, which we're going to start collecting data on this year. We also planted, last spring, we planted a new trial on ferns and a smaller trial on tiarella. Um, we also just planted last fall a brand new pycnanthemum trial, which I'm extremely excited about. Um, they're great plants, kind of, they don't get the attention they deserve uh, and from gardeners, but they certainly get a lot of attention from pollinators, which is something we're very excited to kind of observe and categorize. Um, we also have some smaller trials on um, physostegia and an ongoing uh, evaluation on milkweed. So a lot going on, a lot of new content. There was a lot of excitement about the Carex last year, which was great to see people getting so excited about that. Um, but yeah, we're just, we're in a lot of ways doing the same things, um, but kind of switching direction on the genera or the groups of plants that we're evaluating. Again, all this is tied back to Mount Cuba's mission to inspire people by the beauty and value of these native plants for us specifically in the trial garden. So we're looking at their ornamental qualities and also their ability to potentially benefit wildlife in the mid-Atlantic region. Mm -hmm. And I think that research is so important, Sam, that you're growing the straight species of these natives along with the cultivars so you can give actual um, studies and figures to how many pollinators visiting, how many different insects are on that plant. And of course, as you say, the garden worthiness of these plants. Absolutely. And that's something we try to do as often as possible. Having the straight species is kind of what we consider the baseline comparison whenever we do, or as often as we can, when we include a cultivar in the evaluation. So we can have that direct comparison of plants that are growing in the same place and the same conditions. I mean, recently we've been kind of taking it 
even another step further. We'll try to, as often as we can, have a plant that's a local ecotype, straight species. We know where that seed came from. You know, seed that's you know local to Delaware or local to the Mid-Atlantic region is preferable. Then we may have a commercially sourced plant that is a straight species, but we may not know its origin. And then that third layer is then looking at the cultivar. So having those almost three layers of comparison, I think, are really interesting. Um, we'll see what happens uh, as we compare those those three layers um, going forward. Ah, oh, I didn't know that you were sourcing with local ecotypes as well. That's that is an interesting addition. So, how has it been as far as sourcing those? Um, it's it's been really pretty good and pretty straightforward for some of our most recent trials, like picnanthemum. Um, and ironweeds and um, goldenrods, we've been doing a little bit more of this. Those are very species-focused um, trials, and we were able to either do collections ourselves or work with partners, local botanists, who were able to get us some good genetic material from, again, known locations so that we can use those as what we would consider our baseline to compare everything to. And so for listeners who aren't familiar with the Mount Cuba Center and didn't listen to that Carex episode, uh, let's tell them a little bit about where Mount Cuba is located. Sure. So we are located in northern Delaware, actually quite close to the Pennsylvania border, um, about maybe 15 minutes north of Wilmington. Um, we're, lo- we're in a pretty rural area um, and kind of, you know, picture rolling hills, back roads, um, and it was the former estate of the Copeland family. They moved to this area in the 1930s, built their estate, and quickly realized that their gardening passion kind of revolved and stemmed from native plants. Um, they were big champions of con- conserving native plants and conserving open space, and realized quickly that they wanted to eventually have Mount Cuba Center or their property become Mount Cuba Center and it'd be a place where they could welcome the public in so that those people could be inspired by the beauty and value of native plants and hopefully want to become conservators themselves. Um, And that, you know, that desire lives on today in our mission. It drives everything we do, including what we do in the trial garden. So when you come here, expect to see native plants um, from throughout the East Coast um, used in several different ways in our formal gardens, our trial gardens, and our naturalistic, and even in our natural lands areas. Um, There's um, acres of gardens, what I would consider naturalistic, Um, gardens featuring native plants. There's many um, new trails that are being opened into our natural land so people can enjoy that side of Mount Cuba Center as well. Um, A lot going on. Um, We just completed a new greenhouse facility, new parking lot facility, so we can welcome more guests in. Um, A lot of excitement going on at Mount Cuba Center recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that newish visitor center is very nice. Yes, it's a really great entrance. Um, It kind of features a part of the garden that, you know, was never really accessible before. And the new plantings are beautiful. They're really starting to get established. There's some incredible trees in that space as well that, again, you couldn't see before. Um, There's one yellow wood in particular that is truly spectacular. Hmm. So let's talk about Amsonia. And before we dive into it, maybe people don't know it by that name. Let's talk about the common names. Sure. Um, So you most often will hear Amsoni referred to by the common name Blue Star um, or variations on that. Um, And Blue Star is a great common name. It refers to their flowers, which are tend to be shades of blue, can kind of stray into shades of white at times. Um, There are white forms of Amsoni out there, but they're primarily kind of a light sky blue. And they are, the individual flowers are star shaped. They have five points. And again, great descriptive common name for the flowers of this genus. Mm -hmm. And maybe talk about 
the foliage a little bit because to me it's a very ferny is how I would describe it herbaceous perennial and then in the winter it dies back yes. and then you would cut it back and then it comes back on again. Yeah so Amsonia they really as you mentioned winter there's not a lot of presence in the winter gardens but they have three great seasons of interest kind of that spring bloom that summer foliage and even some fall color um, in the fall and Amsonia foliage can really range from very thin thread-like leaves like you would see on Amsonia hubrichtii or Amsonia ciliata variety tenuifolia. Um, there's kind of some of the intermediate um, width leaves, which kind of remind me of almost like willow leaves on um, things like um, Tabernay Montana variety um, illustrious or variety salicifolia, which literally means willow leaf. Um, and then there's more broadleafed um, forms, which would, don't make up the majority of the Amsonia trial, but they're certainly interesting. So plants like Amsonia ludovichiana or Amsonia Tabernay Montana, variety Tabernay Montana, have a much coarser appearance in the landscape. Um, but their foliage is really kind of an underappreciated part of Blue Star's um, ornamental appeal. I mean, we think about how beautiful those flowers are, and a lot of times, you know, a lot of photos of those flowers show up in our research reports and on our website content. And they're beautiful, they're stunning, but they only really bloom for about a month. Mm -hmm. um, after that, you're kind of left with a plant. Um, you're looking at foliage for the rest of that growing season. And the foliage is beautiful. It adds a lot of textures. As you mentioned, a lot of them kind of have that ferny look and they almost, you almost just want to touch them. Like if you have them um, situated next to a pathway, kind of running your hands through the foliage of Amsonia hubrichtii, for example, it kind of gives you this extra tactile experience with them. Um, the foliage is incredibly clean. They really have no disease issues. And again, on some of them, they develop incredible fall color, kind of shades of gold to some of them are more kind of a buttery yellow but mm -hmm. if you situate situate them in really you know good full sun conditions you will likely be rewarded with a good fall display as well mm -hmm. yeah i would say it's one of my more pettable plants that i have <laughs> next to uh, yes. some of the walkways you can't help but reach out and run your fingers through it it's exactly. almost like a mop head kind of on the ground uh, you know muppet sure sure yep we have some carrots like that too they just um, that texture is just so appealing. Mm -hmm. And I would say the fall coloring is really one of the reasons most people are growing it. And, and yes. I see it in roadside installations, you know, mm -hmm. by this, by uh, state highways and yep. other places because of that brilliant foliage. Yep. And they are just tough as nails, so they can handle some very inhospitable places, um, you know, like roadsides, like um, medians and roads, mm -hmm. um, near, you know, near a mailbox, for example, um, they can really handle very, very tough conditions, many of them at least. Tough is always good. Yes. And so did you rate them for salt tolerance, pollution tolerance, maybe even um, fire? Um, so we didn't look at any of those um, specifically. Mm -hmm. We mostly, we evaluated them in the trial garden um, in, in a condition close to full sun, it probably received a little bit too much shade to see some of the best fall colors um, that probably would have been displayed in other parts of the garden. We do have plantings of Amsonia hybrectii, for example, in our meadow garden that develop incredible fall color. We didn't see that as much in the trial garden, I think really just because they were just in a little bit too much shade. But the soil is kind of a clay loam, pH between six and seven. They were all grown in the same soil, pretty much the same light conditions. 
um, over a 10 year period, which is the longest we've ever evaluated a group of plants. These were planted in 2023, the last year of the trial, or excuse me, 2013, the last year of the trial was 2023. Um, so we looked at them for a long period of time. They had a plenty of opportunity to um, perform well or not perform well, or be short-lived or long-lived. And all of them without exception performed really, really well. And all examples of all 20 Amsonia that we planted in 2013 we're still there in 2023, and some of them just continue to get better and better. Wow. And I was just going to say a side note that because mine is near a front sidewalk, a heavily trafficked and uh, pedestrian area, I can attest to the salt resistance yes. and, the, and the pollution resistance. Sure. And being super tough, you know, even being run over by electric bikes every once in a while. Sure. Yep. <laughs> yep. And so you're saying that all 20 uh, ones that you grew came out with top ratings almost. That's, a, that's amazing. It is. So normally when we do a trial, you know, we'll, for the Carex, for example, we looked at around 70 different Carex species and cultivars. And by the end of it, we picked out a handful. I mean, I think it was about 16 of these Carex that really performed well. Um, and when we talk about our, our rating scale of performance, our rating scale ranges from a one to a five. So one is the lowest score you could achieve. Five is the highest. Three is, three is right in the middle. Three is average. Um, and I say this all the time. Three is not a bad score. There's lots of plants in, in the trial garden that have performed around that three threshold that I would happily grow at home. Uh, but most of the time, the plants that we label as top performers and that we are promoting at the end of these evaluations fall between that range of four to five. I think 17 of those 20 Amsonia fell in that range at the end of this evaluation. I think there was only a couple that were slightly lower, um, but they were in the high threes. Um, so this is a group of plants where it's kind of difficult to pick those top performers. They're all really, really good. A lot of it kind of comes down to your needs in your home landscape. What are you looking for? What kind of space are you trying to fill? Um, you know, you, there is an Amsonia that can fit almost any of those requirements um, as far as, you know, how much space you want to take up, when you want that bloom to be appearing. Uh, there's, it's, it's less about choose this plant and more about which plant can I right size for my specific situation? Hmm. So we should probably dial it back a little bit and talk about the fact that Mount Cuba specializes in natives, as yes. you had said before, and is trialing natives, but not all Amsonia are native. So let's talk about some of those origins and, and what you have in the garden. Yeah. So so even just to, to go back to Mount Cuba's and, and the trial garden's definition of, quote, native, mm -hmm. um, we consider plants that are native to the eastern temperate forest region. And sometimes that can be simplified to just saying the eastern United States as native and as plants that we want to evaluate in the trial garden. Now, sometimes we bend those rules a little bit. There's a couple Amsonia that fall just outside of that range, more into um, the Wichita Mountains um, in Kansas and Oklahoma, um, for example, with Amsonia hubrichtii. Um, but a lot of Amsonia, a lot of the entire genus of Amsonia occurs in kind of that eastern temperate forest region in the eastern U.S. and in the Gulf Coast, um, several in eastern Texas. There's a handful of species that also occur in the American Southwest and into northern Mexico. And there's two species that grow outside of North America. One of them is Amsonia orientalis, um, which is sometimes um, classified in its own genera uh, called Ryza. Um, but Amsonia orientalis grows in Greece and Turkey. And then there's one last species, Amsonia elliptica, that grows in Japan. Hmm. Um, and we included Amsonia orientalis in the trial garden, um, which we've never done before. We've never had a truly 
non-North American native plant evaluated side by side with our, quote, natives in the trial garden. Um, but we included Amsonia orientalis for a good reason. Um, there had been a lot of speculation that a commonly available Amsonia, so this is Amsonia um, blue ice, sometimes sold as a cultivar Tabern in Montana, sometimes advertised as a hybrid. There was a lot of anecdotal similarities between blue ice and Amsonia orientalis, which is, again, a non-native species native to Europe. Um, so we grew them side by side to kind of see if there were any similarities or if there were any differences or if there was any kind of any kind of supporting evidence to say that maybe these are the same plant. Hmm. And did you come out with any conclusions to that? Yes. Um, so through observation, and again, this is over 10 years, blue ice and Amsonia orientalis performed in a near identical way, bloomed at the exact same time. They were the only plants in the, in the trial that had any disease issues. They ended up getting rust in late summer on several of the years of the evaluation. None of our native Amsonia ever had that problem. They have a unique growth habit. They are rhizomatous. Um, there are native Amsonias that are rhizomatous, but it is an uncommon trait, especially with the trial Amsonia. Most of them are clump forming plants. They never really move beyond where they're originally planted. Um, Amsonia blue ice and orientalis eventually kind of develop into this ground cover. Um, and when you have them side by side, the differences become pretty minuscule. Um, there's a slight difference in shade of the purple of the flowers. Blue ice is maybe a little bit more prolific in its blooms, but they are a nearly identical plant. Um, and we consider at Mount Cuba Center to that, to, um, that Amsonia blue ice is just a, a really horticulturally superior selection of Amsonia orientalis. Hmm. So um, if you are trying for an all native garden, that might not be for you then. Yes. Um, great plant. I don't think it really has um, a potential to escape cultivation or a high potential to escape from cultivation. I suppose that's something we wouldn't know um, mm -hmm. or may not know immediately. Um, but if you are, if your goal is to plant native plants and you're particularly interested in plants that are native to maybe Eastern North America, um, blue ice would not um, fall under the list of plants that you could consider for that. Hmm. Well, I'm so fascinated that you found that out. I think that's really cool. And you mentioned the rust issue. Is there anything you can do about rust? Do you just cut it out at that point? What do you do? Yeah, so uh, when we did observe that, and again, it was only with Orientalis and with Blue Ice, um, essentially what happened is in late summer, they defoliated really early. It really didn't seem to impact the overall health of the plant. Something you can do is to, things that you can do is just site the plant in an area where there's good air circulation, um, in an area where maybe it's receiving more sun, the plants can be more robust and potentially have the ability to fight off that disease. Often when we see a high disease incidence in the trial garden, it's because the plant is stressed for some reason. So a lot of that can be, you can remedy a lot of that simply by, you know, choosing a good, a good location for the plant and keeping it healthy and robust in your landscape. Hmm. And when you're picking a planting site for Amsonia, what would be the ideal conditions? So a lot of them are extremely adaptable to soil type. Um, some of them can handle actually quite wet conditions like the Amsonia Tabernay Montana, Variety Tabernay Montana, or the Wideleaf Blue Stars. Um, they can handle kind of maybe on the more wet end of the spectrum than some of the others. Um, I think drainage is often going to be important, but they are flexible on soil type. Um, and they can handle some shade, but I think you're gonna get the best performance out of these plants 
um, by citing them in full sun at least six hours or more of sun a day. Hmm. And you're planting them um, in the native soil, not doing really any soil amending, I'm imagining. Yep, and that's are you right. planting them a little bit high and then adding some compost around or any fertilizer or anything like that? You certainly could do that at home. Um, I tend to plant perennials, you know, flush with the soil surface. I tend to, and this is again, just at home. Um, and I tend to plant woodies just a little bit high, um, depending on the species, but it does help with drainage a little bit, keeping that crown a little bit higher um, or that root flare a little bit higher. Um, but in the trial garden, we didn't do any supplemental fertilization. Um, when they were planted, all we did was supplementally water them for the first season. So this was in 2013. After that, it was hands-off. So for nine years, they received no supplemental care, no fertilizer, and they never appeared to be lacking anything. Um, and again, in fact, they just kept getting better and better. So these are incredibly durable, low-maintenance plants. Um, you really don't have to do much to them. Um, aside from kind of a seasonal cleanup. Um, and we tended to do that kind of in late February, early March, we'd go through and cut back the stems. Um, and again, only, you only have to do that one time of year. Um, and what we would also do in the trial garden is try to leave those stems a little bit high. We'd leave 12 to 18 inches or so of those stems. Um, the stems have kind of a spongy pith in the middle that um, native uh, cavity nesting bees will hollow out and they will actually nest in those hollow stems of the Amsonia. Um, so it gives you kind of a little extra bang for your buck as far as um, wildlife value and um, added habitat to your home landscape if you're gardening with Amsonias. Hmm. So the cutback is in late winter, early spring, yeah. and then the foliage is going to emerge, uh, the new foliage, pretty shortly after that. Yes. What if you wait, Sam, and this is a lot of us, and I get this mm -hmm. question a lot, it's already starting to emerge new foliage and I haven't done my cutback. Yeah, I would say not to worry about it. Um, do your best to get, you know, clean up those dead stems. But um, Amsonia grow really, really rapidly in the early spring. Um, so they will quickly cover up those stems, even if you leave them really high. Um, even if you don't get to that cutback, I don't think it's the end of the world either. I think eventually those older stems will mat down. Um, leaving that organic matter is not a bad thing in your home landscape. And it kind of depends on what your aesthetic goals are. Um, in my home landscape, closer to my house, I do a little bit more of a detailed cutback, more traditional um, landscaping, I guess, in that sense. But in some of, the, some of the meadow areas, kind of in the back 40 away from the house, I don't worry about the cutback as much. I might cut things a lot higher. I may not cut back at all. Um, and the plants are unaffected. I think it really just comes down to what your preferences as far as aesthetics are. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Amsonia, again, grow rapidly, especially when they're emerging in the spring. They grow up very fast, flower, and then they have the secondary flush of growth um, that will quickly cover up any stems that were left from the previous year. And no deadheading either. You don't have to. Um, you certainly can. Um, Amsonia will set seed and you may get some seedlings, but to me, that's always kind of a welcome thing to see. You can share those seedlings with neighbors or spread them around the garden. Um, one thing to keep in mind, though, and this is a total aside with Amsonia, if you have multiple different Amsonia growing in your home landscape or nearby, you have a very high likelihood of hybridization to occur. Um, Amsonia are, I guess we'll say, are fairly promiscuous in cultivation. You can end up with hybrids, which could end up with a, you know, you could end up with a very interesting plant. Some cultivars today are being introduced um, based on interesting hybrids that have occurred in cultivation. Um, but, uh, you know, 
if you're trying to keep that straight species, if you're only gardening with one, you're likely going to get seedlings that are nearly a match to that parent or an exact match. Um, but yeah, as far as deadheading, you can leave them alone. The seeds are interesting, not always obvious, um, because there is that second flush of um, foliage immediately after bloom. A lot of those seeds are somewhat covered up. Um, but the seed capsules themselves can be a good ID feature for some of these species, differentiating them, um, which can be sometimes challenging, but the seeds can give you a little bit of a clue about, you know, who's who in the garden. Um, but one thing you can do, if you wanted to have an Amsonia that, you know, if you want it to be a little bit shorter, it's maybe getting too big for that space, you can do a cutback right when it starts to flush that second growth. Hmm. Um, and the plants will re reflush and maybe... Um, maybe have a few extra blooms because of that, but the plants will stay a little bit more compact for you. And since we're on the subject of those seed heads, mm -hmm. um, I think the Amsonia seed heads are so fascinating and that dispersal process. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Amsonia seed are really, really interesting. So there, um, each Amsonia flower has two ovaries and eventually once it's fertilized, will produce these kind of paired almost forked um, seed structures. They're actually called follicles. Um, so often you'll see them in pairs. Um, you'll see that with, um, with dog banes as well, which is actually, they're related to Amsonia. And sometimes Amsonia are referred to by that, um, by that common name. Um, but eventually once those seeds ripen, they'll split down the side and they'll release their seeds, which to me are some of the most fascinating seeds out there. They're very cylindrical and they're stacked on top of each other in a linear way in these follicles. Um, and when you get a really close up look at those seeds, we actually have a picture of this in our research report. It almost looks like brain coral or something. There's a very textured surface to that seed. Um, they're fascinating and they'll drop out and you'll often have a lot of, again, seedlings occurring around that parent plant that you could then pot up or move around to other parts of the garden. Yeah, I think the way they stack, it's almost like pony beads, if you know, mm -hmm. for braiding. <laughs> that's sure, it, sure. That's what it reminds me of. Sure. It's so interesting. Um, so you talked about the little native bees who might overwinter in those spongy stems. So mm -hmm. let's move on to some of the pollinators that visit Amsonia. And is it a host plant for any of our native pollinators? It is. Um, it actually hosts um, several species of native moths and butterflies. We actually saw one case of this um, happening at Mount Cuba Center, which was fascinating to see that this was happening in cultivation as well. Um, so we actually saw the caterpillars of the snowberry clearwing. Um, it's a hummingbird moth um, feeding on the foliage of one of the Amsonia plants in our trials. And we later on saw the adults of that snowberry clearwing flying around and nectaring on various Amsonia plants. So the Amsonia, even in cultivation, were supporting all life stages of this moth. The caterpillars were fascinating. And again, hummingbird moths, I think, are some of the most charismatic pollinators um, that you can have visiting your garden. I know I get excited every time I see them at home. Um, we have a couple good pictures of them in the research report. Um, and there's also apparently a few other moths and butterflies that can be found throughout the other the range of Amsonia as well. But at least in cultivation and um, Mount Cuba Center is beyond the native range of several of these Amsonia, we were still seeing them support ecosystem services in cultivation. Um, and Amsonia are known to be good pollinator plants. They're blooming early, which we know is, a, is an important time for pollinators. We were watching for bumblebees, especially. We saw a lot of bumblebee activity. 
We saw even monarch butterflies that were migrating north, stopping by on the Amazonia. We saw hummingbirds. We saw several species of other native bees and long-tongued flies. Um, they really need a, you really need a proboscis to be able to get down to the nectar reward of those kind of tubular shaped flowers, but a lot of, and a surprising diversity of insects were observed, um, but interestingly, never in very high numbers. Um, and it was actually one of the things that we were kind of puzzled about. Why were we seeing these lower numbers on the Amsonia? Is it potentially that there's a specialist bee or a specialist pollinator that we're not seeing because we're outside of its specific range? Was there potentially a nocturnal pollinator that we weren't observing for? We did all our observations during the day. Um, and again, we looked for pollinators just in 2023. Um, we did a comprehensive observation on a near daily basis while they were in bloom this past year. But we did see, just anecdotally, a higher number of insects, especially bumblebees, visiting other Amsonia around the gardens, especially Amsonia that were grown in full sun. And I think sometimes that shade may have also decrease the number of insects we were seeing in addition to kind of having a, an impact on how much fall color was produced later on in the season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And without that nocturnal information, maybe there are some moths and other creatures. Yes, very possibly. I and mean, we know that moths and watching the snowberry clearing moth feed very efficiently in the Amsonia. It's possible that there's a nocturnal moth that's doing the exact same thing. So let's go on to another creature that might be visiting your Amsonia but it sounds like it's pretty deer resistant from what I was reading in the report. Yes. Um, and that's to me, um, in my home garden, deer are a major consideration and Amsonia are, have no issues with deer herbivory. Um, there are very few animals that really want to browse or eat Amsonia at all. Amsonia produce a kind of milky latex like sap um, that is poisonous to herbivores or at the very least very unpalatable. Um, I have Amsonia planted in a natural er or naturalistic area of, of my yard that has a lot of deer pass through. And I've only had one occasion where the deer have tipped one or two stems of one Amsonia and then left it alone. Um, all other times they are left untouched. And, you know, to me, that is a really, really great trait when you're gardening in an area with such high deer populations. Oh, yeah. So we're talking about Sam super low maintenance, yep. deer resistant, if not deer proof, yep. great pollinator benefit. Why is this not more grown? I'm not sure. I think one of the reasons, and this is just a personal guess, um, I think it's one of those plants that you just need to have a little bit of patience to garden with. Um, and I think sometimes when you see a pot of Amsonia at the nursery, um, it can look a little small and it doesn't look like it's doing a whole lot in that pot. And that's kind of just the way the Amsonia grow. Um, when they produce growth over that year, they produce that initial flush, they flower, and then they produce a second flush of foliage, and then they kind of sit like that for the rest of the year. They're not doing a lot of growing above ground. What they're doing is they're putting down a lot of roots, a lot of below ground growth. So the next year, you're going you're gonna to see this major jump in the amount of stems it's going to produce. Um, and Amsonia just take a little bit of time, but I think with patience, and that may just be the key ingredient when gardening with Amsonia, you wait two, three, maybe four years you are going to be rewarded for essentially as long as you want to garden with them. I have, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that they have an expiration date in the landscape. Um, they, again, after 10 years, they just got better and better in our trials. Um, so again, just that initial investment of patience, um, knowing what that plant's going to do, even if it might be small when you're buying it from the nursery or you're getting it from mail order um, specialist nursery or anything like that, 
knowing what that plant's going to do eventually and just having a little bit of patience. I think that's all that's required of them. And it is great. We're kind of seeing a resurgence in um, availability of some of these older cultivars that we first selected in 2013. And we're seeing some newer cultivars also being um, introduced and some species that were really difficult to track down in 2013 are starting to be more available today. Hmm. And so for landscape uses and combinations, um, do you have any favorite um, companion plants or, or maybe putting it in the front of a perennial border or where would you situate it in a landscape? I think, yeah, it kind of depends on the plant itself. Um, so uh, I think one of the decisions, a big decision-making tool for us is essentially the dimensions, the ultimate dimensions of that plant after three to four years. And we have a lot of those measurements in our research report. Um, so these larger plants, maybe back of the border, you can even use them as a foundation plant, as kind of like a temporary shrub, if you will, that's really going to have that presence only for three seasons of the year. Um, for some of these smaller plants, can be front of the border. Some of them could be really at home in a container, um, container garden or in a rock garden. Um, so it really kind of depends on the amount of space that you're willing to um, invest in these plants. Um, I just, I really like Amsonia. I try to include as many as I can just because they are tough. They're very low maintenance. Um, and I'm rewarded with them constantly year and year after year. Um, so, yeah. And what do you think about growing them in a container, like a large container or a combination container? I think it's totally doable. I think especially if um, you're picking some of the more compact species, I think some of them could have quite a long life in a container and you could garden with them effectively that way. Um, but as far as companion plants, other spring blooming plants um, are a great companion. I love at Mount Cuba Center, we have um, Phacelia um, by Penitifida planted around that blooms at a really beautiful time with the Amsonia. Um, ferns coming up with them look spectacular. There's, there's a lot of good companions, um, even, if it's, even if you're just thinking about it beyond the flowering season. Having that texture in the landscape, if you planted a really broad leaf plant next to your Amsonia hubrichtii, you could have that really interesting contrast and foliage texture, which would last for the entire rest of the growing season. Mm -hmm. I agree. And different grasses, even Baptisia looks great next to it. Absolutely. And another group of my favorite plants are Baptisias. Same reasons, though. Um, Long-lived, tough, not many disease or pest issues. Um, yeah, great groups of, of native plants for the garden. And so I'm going to ask you that question you're dreading, which is your favorites. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's such a challenging question to answer. And I'll, I think I'll just go for my favorite at the moment. Um, but it might change, um, maybe to even by tomorrow. <laughs> but my favorite Amsonia currently is a, um, a smaller species called Amsonia ciliata variety tenuifolia. Um, great if you have smaller space or you know, less space to work with potentially um, could be used in a container garden. I use them in a rock garden, which is in theory, a very inhospitable place. Um, sand, gravel, not a lot of organic matter, full sun, no extra water for the entire summer. And these plants thrive in that condition. Um, Ciliata tenuifolia tends to grow in sandy, kind of rocky areas throughout the Southeastern United States and the South Central United States. Um, I just love that texture. I love those early flowers. They bloom earlier than a lot of the other Amsonia starting kind of early to mid-May. And to me, it's really, it really looks like a miniaturized Amsonia hubrichtii. Might be a little challenging to find in commerce. You can, you can find them. There is some availability out there, 
but I think is a really, really cool species, especially if you have a limited, um, limited space in your home landscape. And what would you recommend for the beginner? That's, this is their first Amsonia. Yeah, I mean, you really can't go wrong. Um, I think Amsonia hubrichtii is popular for a great reason. Um, that foliage is incredible. Um, flowers are beautiful and that fall color is spectacular. So if you're really looking for a plant that kind of has it all, um, and you're looking for a plant that's maybe widely available that a lot of garden centers will carry, Amsonia hubrichtii is a great place to start. Um, there's another Amsonia out there that's been um, introduced by Plantalites in Walters Gardens called Amsonia Taberty Montana Storm Cloud. That to me is one of the most beautiful Amsonia. When it comes out of the spring, kind of um, early April, um, it kind of comes out of the stem with these almost deep purple, inky black um, stems. They almost look like asparagus shoots. They bloom early, um, darker blue flowers than most other Amsonias. And that foliage even has kind of a purplish flush through it through a lot of the summer. Um, really spectacular plant. Again, becoming more and more available. Um, there's some great, great plants out there. Again, I don't think you could go wrong with Amsonia, but I would say those are probably my two favorites to maybe begin with maybe with a slight preference to Amsonia hubrichtii. Hmm. Yeah, and I do love that dramatic dark stem on that one. Absolutely. Do you know where the breeding is going in Amsonia? What are people looking for to improve the plant? So we've been seeing um, a lot of introductions come out of Intrinsic Perennial Gardens and Brent Horvath. Um, he's been coming out with some really interesting hybrids lately. One of them is called Starstruck. He has some others in the baseball series that he's been introducing. Um, they tend to be more compact plants and very floriferous plants. I think Starstruck is one that we've been experimenting with in our new parking lot, um, and the gardeners really, really like it. Um, the foliage lasts um, really well throughout the entire season. Um, it's compact, again, very floriferous. Um, I think that's where breeding tends to go, um, and especially having plants that can look good in a container, inspire someone to say, oh, that plant's beautiful. I want to bring that home and plant it. Um, some of these other plants, especially the really, really big ones, um, you know, again, you might, it might take a little while to see them, some of those traits that you would get from a mature plant after it's been in the landscape for a few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would think size, compactness, that's yep. really what they're aiming for. But yep. I was also wondering, you know, we're talking about some of the lighter blooms, um, you know, almost a light blue, pale white, mm -hmm. that if they were trying to introduce any other coloring, maybe even something into the pink purple range. Yeah, I've never seen anything kind of stray into the pink purple with the exception of the Amsonia orientalis and blue ice. They do kind of stray into the kind of that lavender end of the yeah. spectrum. Um, the closest thing to having, you know, a really novel color come out with Amsonia probably is storm cloud, just because those, those flowers um, aren't really sky blue anymore. They're really kind of this deep, beautiful um, blue that's, I think, really striking in the landscape. Um, that was a selection. That plant was actually found, I believe, in Bibb County, Alabama. It was trialed at Plantalites and at Walters Gardens. Um, and they, I think, unanimously said, this is one of the best Amsonia we've ever grown. Um, so that was natural variation that was selected. Um, no breeding went into that one, although I'm sure it's going to be potentially used as a breeding parent for potential future cultivars. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so you mentioned that one from Alabama. One of the other common names is Arkansas Blue Star. I hear mm -hmm. people use that for all Amsonia. Yes, and there are a few blue stars from that part of the world um, or part of the United States, like Amsonia hubrichtii, Amsonia ciliata um, can be found there. 
um, and, and Amsonia Taberny Montana variety illustris as well. Um, and some people simplify that down to Amsonia illustris. That seems to be where things are going. Amsonia nomenclature and how these plants are classified as far as species is a bit messy at the moment. Um, and things are being recategorized um, and redescribed. And I think there's a few potential new species of Amsonia that um, are being looked at as well. So botanically a bit confused at the moment, but I think maybe we'll see some of that shake out in the coming years. Hmm. So now we're going to have to ne- learn some new Latin terms. Sam. Potentially, potentially. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, to add confusion to Amsonia, I mean, they do hybridize and this happens in the wild as well. Um, there's places in the Eastern United States where willow leaf blue star um, coexist in the same habitat as wide leaf blue stars. This is Amsonia Taberne Montana variety um, Salicifolia and Amsonia Taberne Montana variety Taberne Montana. And some botanists don't even differentiate the two. The, the lines between those two subs or these two varieties of the same species can get very blurred um, and it's difficult to categorize them sometimes. Um, so it's Again, hybrids can occur that can further confuse things, and we know that can happen um, in cultivation as well. <sighs> well, we'll see it shake out in a few years, but yes. I'm not renaming this episode. It's still nope. <laughs> going to still gonna be all about Amsonia. That's right. Yeah, there will still be Amsonia, I'm sure. <laughs> all right. So how can our listeners access that full report? So the research report just went live on our website on the 13th. So it is live today. Um, if you go to mtcubacenter.org slash trials, you'll see um, a bunch of information on the Amsonia trial. You can see the research report um, on the website. You can download the PDF version for free. Alternatively, um, if you come to Mount Cuba Center starting April 3rd, you can pick up a hard copy. Um, you can purchase it at our ticketing office or in the Copeland House. Um, and we do, I'll just do with my shameless plug, we do, I will be teaching a few um, classes on Amsonia, um, one in May, and I believe one this coming fall. Um, and with that, you'll also get the research report and we'll go, we'll do a much more in-depth dive on all the Amsonia and the trial garden and beyond. Hmm. And so to sign up for those classes, they'll, they'll go to the same Mount Cuba website? Yep, mtcubacenter.org, and you'll look at some of our educational op- offerings. Now, we'll, we are closed during the, during the winter to regular visitation. But there are lots of classes that you can sign up for in the off season, lots of ways that you can engage with Mount Cuba Center beyond um, just coming during um, our regular open season, which goes from April 3rd this year to about Thanksgiving. Hmm. And most of the classes that you're talking about, they'll be on Zoom. So anybody in the world could really access them. Yep. A lot of classes have a remote option. Some of them are just um, strictly in person, but there's a lot more flexibility that has come from some of these remote learning um, platforms. Um, So we're able to access more people, more people are able to access us um, and learn from us. And we're able to spread our mission um, a lot farther than we we have in the past, um, just because we're able to reach more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and listeners, don't miss going to Mount Cuba for those spring ephemerals. Um, we'll put in our show notes a link to the Trilliums episode that we did uh, with Amy Highland at Mount Cuba as well. Absolutely. And I think we also had an episode about the flocks, the garden flocks trials um, as well. Yep. Um, and just... Uh, a great time if you're interested in those spring ephemerals and trilliums. Um, a great time to come here is kind of late April, and we will be having a um, our Wildflower Weekend event, um, which is a three-day event. Um, there's a lot of other activities 
Um, and it's a really, really great time to see those plants um, and enjoy the gardens. Mm-hmm. And so how can listeners contact you if they want to find out anything more directly from you, Sam? Uh, directly from me, you can either contact our information mailbox, that's information at mtcubacenter.org, mm-hmm. or you can email me directly at shodley, hodley's H-O-A-D-L-E-Y, at mtcubacenter.org. I'm always happy to talk about the trials um, and just plants in general. Um, yeah, sometimes it's it's harder to get me to stop talking about plants. Um, <laughs> that may have become obvious on this podcast, but yes. And so uh, when they come and visit and look at those trial gardens and they see that some plants don't look as well as others or they want to give you some feedback, is there a way to do that right there on site? We're often out there um, engaged with the public and answering questions. Um, but that's one of the things we try to tell people is, you know, our trial gardens are open, they're accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, they're this great space for learning and making those decisions, getting inspired. So you don't have to wait for our research reports to come and make decisions on which plants you want to buy. You can see those differences in person. Um, We're seeing the same things you're seeing when you come here. Um, A lot of times, even anecdotally, you can see which plants the pollinators are preferring. Often we're seeing the same things, but we're just backing that up with, you know, data and real-time observations that are recorded. But, you know, making those decisions, getting inspired by plants, that's what it's all about. Um, And coming and seeing what plants look great um, with the Amsonia kind of all of them, but it is really great to see them all in person, seeing what they're doing, especially after a 10 year period. Um, mm-hmm. It's great to see you know, how they're gonna look in a mature landscape. Hmm. And my final question for you, do you have a volunteer or docent program at Mount Cuba? Yes, uh, we actually have a really great oppor- um, volunteer opportunity with our pollinator watch team. And this is really, This is the core group of volunteers that are doing those pollinator observations. It is almost entirely volunteer driven, and they're the reason we're able to to offer this great data and collect this data on pollinator preference and pollinator interaction with the various species and cultivars um, that we have on evaluation in the trial garden. Um, And they are key to, you know, to accessing that data and for us to interpret that data later on. So that's an, a volunteer opportunity that's available. Um, and I'm sure there are other volunteer opportunities around um, with the horticulture team as well, if people are interested. Hmm. Excellent. So not a position for somebody who's afraid of bees. Right. But... Right. <laughs> for... I will say I, we have never had an incidence of a bee bothering, stinging anybody. Um, I've only been stung once and it was my fault. Um, the, the bees are really, they're there for a reason. They want to collect that nectar. They don't really need to defend that plant. It's not really that high value that they feel like they need to be territorial around it. It's it's a really fun activity, I think, and, and very low risk, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you're one of those people who's obsessed with insects and bugs, that's the place for you. Absolutely. Especially with plants like Pycnanthemum, um, mm-hmm. which will be in bloom um, this summer. Oh, yeah. Very excited for that. I can't even imagine, Sam, having to be the person to count how many bees would be on my mountain mint. Yes. I don't know how, honestly, I, I don't, I'm not sure how we're going to do it yet. Um, I think there's, we're going to have to narrow our scope. We're not going to be able to look at an entire plant when we're doing that pollinator observation because there are just so many bees and such an incredible diversity of bees on those plants. So it's going to be fascinating. We know we're going to see a lot of insects. I, I just, it'll be really, it'll be a lot of fun. I can't wait to read that final report and have you back on the podcast to talk about that. Yeah, I'd love to. Love to. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Coralberry, plant profile. Coralberry, Symphocarpus orbiculatus, is a low-growing shrub with attractive winter berries. It is native to eastern North America. It is also known as Indian currant and buckbrush. It is hardy to USDA zones 4 to 8. It has small blooms that flower starting in April that are visited by bees, wasps, and flies. But the real show is those pink-purple berries that appear in winter. The berries are loved by songbirds and small mammals. Note that the berries are not edible for humans as they contain saponin, a chemical that can be toxic in large amounts. It prefers to grow in part sun to part shade in well-draining soils, such as under deciduous trees like oaks. It is pollution-resistant and drought-tolerant once established. It spreads by suckering, so it's easy to propagate and move around your garden or share a piece with a gardening friend. It's a good choice as a ground cover, and you can plant it on a slope for erosion control. Note, though, that coral berry is not deer-resistant. The shrub can reach four feet tall and six feet wide. Coral berry is low-maintenance, but if it starts to get too leggy, you can prune it back to about 18 inches high every few years. Coralberry, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, my hellebores are putting on quite a show, and I pulled back some leaf litter to reveal the yellow bright flowers of winter aconite. They're so cheery on a gray winter day. The garden tasks we're sharing on our social media this week include flower arranging tips all around Valentine's Day. One of my favorite tips is not mixing daffodils with other flowers until you've changed out the water a few times on those daffodils, but I still keep them as a separate bouquet just in case. If you weren't aware, Daffodils exude a substance that can kill the other flowers in a vase when you mix them with other varieties. A couple local gardening events you might want to attend include on March 3rd, which is a Sunday at 10 a.m. I'll be speaking at Homestead Gardens in Davidsonville, Maryland on rose pruning. And then that same day at 2 p.m. I'll be speaking at the Homestead Gardens in Severna Park on that same topic. So I'll also cover rose care, organic choices uh, to make when planting your roses and taking care of them, and some great varieties that do well in the mid-Atlantic. And you can register for that at homesteadgardens.com. Also coming up on Saturday, March 9th at 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Arlington Central Library in Arlington, Virginia is the 2024 Spring Garden Kickoff hosted by Plot Against Hunger. They're going to have some terrific speakers, 
uh, food pantries, seed and seedling giveaways, and garden tips. So check that out at arlingtonurbanag.org. Happy gardening! Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen and Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. This is Christy Page with Food Gardening Network on craving summer flavors on a very wintry day. I don't know about you, but for me, although February is the shortest month days-wise, it always seems like the longest to me. Being a leap year with an extra day just makes it feel like torture. February to me always feels like a time of endless winter. The sun struggles each day to just make an appearance. There's a layer of snow covering any semblance of my garden. The trees are bare and look to be so droopy and sad. It feels like the whole world needs an uplift. This is the time of year that I even dread going to the grocery store. The section reserved for local farmers is now filled with canned items. The produce, while still looking fresh, is not quite as bright and cheerful as what we enjoy during the summer months. I see many more people tossing sweets into their carts than fresh veggies. Today, I decide to get into a different mindset. If I can't have summer outside, maybe I can recreate it inside. I take an early morning trip to the grocery store. I grab containers of fresh blueberries and raspberries. They may not be quite as sweet as the ones from my bushes, but they sure look juicy. 
I pick up a crisp head of romaine lettuce and some very red-looking Roma tomatoes and a firm cucumber. I'm going to come across some fresh mushrooms and Brussels sprouts and have an instant idea for dinner. I bring all of my treasures home and plan out my meals for the day. Breakfast is yogurt with some of the fresh berries and granola. Lunch is a crunchy, satisfying salad, but it is dinner that I am most excited for. I toss my Brussels sprouts in a little olive oil, salt, and pepper, and I start roasting them in the air fryer. This gives them a crispness that helps bring out their natural flavors. In a pan, I sear some chicken breasts and butter with some freshly chopped garlic cloves. I toss in my sliced fresh onions and mushrooms and let it all simmer for a bit. Once I'm certain that the chicken is about ready and the Brussels sprouts are only have a minute or two left, I cover the chicken breast with some shredded cheese. My timers are dinging and the smell is heavenly. I enjoy a fresh, wonderful meal that is not too different from what I would have made in the summer with ingredients fresh from my garden. I feel so much lighter and happier. I've stolen a bit of summer in the middle of winter. As I pack up my leftovers and smile at the berries waiting patiently for tomorrow's breakfast, I remind myself that if I'm creative, I can have a bit of summer all year long. Suddenly, February doesn't seem that long. Are there any specific things that you like to use to fight the winter blues? Because I could use a helping hand. (laughs) This has been Christy Page with the last word from foodgardening.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Garden DC. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.blogspot.com. Thank you. You can find and follow Washington Gardener on Twitter slash X, Instagram and Pinterest at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook at Washington Gardener Magazine. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Spotify and Apple. Open the Spotify or Apple app, search for Garden DC, check on the rate button, and select five stars.